The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And it is my pleasure to welcome into the studio over Skype, Mr. and Pastor Jim Stevenson of Providence OPC in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Jim, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Jim is not only an esteemed pastor in the OPC, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but he's also the president of Greenville Seminary's Alumni Association, having himself graduated with his MDiv in the year 2012. He and his wife, Tricia, have four children, and they, of course, live in Tulsa, and he frequently is elected as a delegate that's a representative of his presbytery, to the OPC's General Assembly, and he served in such capacity this year. So I have him on the program to, to talk to us about the 85th General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which met about a month ago, June 11th to 15th, in Wheaton, Illinois, at Wheaton College. And what was remarkable about this, and Jim's going to get into into this as part of our interview, but the OPC conducted their General Assembly, um, I want to say, in partnership with or alongside of the United Reformed Churches in North America. They worshipped together, uh, though they conducted their denominational business separately. I hope I represented all of that accurately, Jim. Um, Did all that sound okay to you? Sounded fine to me. Great. So the OPC General Assembly, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is a delegated assembly. You may have, you may recall Dr. Piper mentioning that as a, one option that the PCA could consider to achieve a greater degree of parity in our own representation at the at our assembly. But what this means, what a delegated assembly is, in case you didn't listen to the PCA debrief from earlier this week. Uh, means that a designated number of commissioners are assigned uh, to the various presbyteries of the denomination, and then those presbyteries elect men, ruling elders and teaching elders, from within their ranks to attend the assembly as representative commissioners or, or delegates, it's thus delegated assembly. Jim, what preparations do you make to ensure that you are serving the best interests of the Church as a whole, even as you are tasked with representing your presbytery as an elected commissioner? Well, honestly, probably the biggest key is making absolutely sure I go through the docket and reports that are presented to us uh, beforehand. Usually it's a total of close to 300 pages, um, and in particular, I will focus on the one report that is um, that the advisory committee to which I'm assigned has to deal with. Can you explain what advisory committees are for our listeners? Sure. Uh, the Really, the, the bulk of the beginning of the work of the assembly is that we meet in advisory committees. All of the all of the commissioners, they are assigned to particular advisory committees to discuss the reports and make recommendations to the body um, concerning the report or concerning any recommendations any committee might have. Uh, so, for example, this year, um, I was actually the convener of the advisory committee that dealt with 
um, our denominational committee on coordination, and also there was a special committee related to Canadian matters. Is that special committee the um, the one dealing with Ontario in particular, or was it Ottawa? Well, it was more a church that was up in Alberta, um, which stemmed off all kinds of discussions about how churches that are OPC in Canada can contribute to like our worldwide outreach um, that's in the States. So there's Canadian restrictions on money crossing the border into the U.S. Yeah, there are a lot of restrictions around that. The Canadian Revenue Agency, the CRA, has many, many, has has a great deal of, of rules on the books. Correct. To, um, to keep charitable donations within Canada. So that, I imagine most of our listeners aren't aware of that, but as the advancement director of a seminary here in the States that frequently serves and produces ministers for Canada, um, that is something that I've had to, to think through myself sure. and work into. So I appreciate, I appreciate what you brothers have had to go through, um, going through all those rules. The denomination statistician, Reverend Luke E. Brown, this is where we'll start. The denomination statistician, Reverend Brown, addressed the assembly with his report on the size and growth of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as of 2018. How many congregations are in the OPC, according to the statistician's report? Well, two things. First of all, Luke Brown is not a minister, so he's not reverend. Um, Oh, really? And although he is no longer serving as an elder, years ago I served on the session with him at our church north of Philadelphia, Trinity OPC in Hatboro. So he and I actually served together on a session years ago. Um, but yeah, he's been the statistician now for over 30 years, and I think the numbers that he produced were about 280 or 281 congregations as of the end of 2017, which that includes the mission works and the fact that we have 17 presbyteries. Very good. Yeah, online, and I apologize to our listeners for the factual inaccuracy on my part, but online in the um, the OPC's... 2018 General Assembly report, Mr. Brown was listed as Reverend uh, Luke E. Brown, which is where I got that from. So I apologize for the inaccuracy and uh, the either demeaning of Mr. Brown or the demeaning of the office. I don't know uh, <laughs> what you would consider that a mistake. So how many men came to GA this year as voting commissioners? Well, according to the docket um, and all the preliminary presentation, there were supposed to have been 143 that showed up. Um, I I don't know that our votes ever got to 140, but they did get to 139. So we know for sure there were at least 139 there. That's pretty good, 139 out of of 144 slots, or 133 slots, 43 slots. Um, Now, this is qualitatively different than um, than an assembly like the PCAs, which would have 1,500 commissioners this past year, or like the, the ARPs, which I think might have had at least twice as many as, uh, as, as 139. But the, the benefit here is that you're able to have an, an actually deliberative assembly. That's correct. Yeah, one of the things it does allow is 
there can be lengthy debate on the floor. Now, that could also be a hindrance sometimes because uh, there were a number of times our moderator had to indicate to the floor, to the body, hey, I'm starting to hear some of the same arguments. If you've got something new to say, that's fine, but don't repeat arguments that have already been made. That's a good reminder. Um, and how, do you have any clear idea of how many of the 143 that were supposed to be there or the 139 that were actually present were teaching elders and how many were ruling elders, what the breakup or the divide well, was? Well, according to the docket, there were supposed to have been there of the 143, 87 commissioned teaching elders and 54 commissioned ruling elders. And then the two ex officio members, which would be the stated clerk and also the previous moderator. That makes a lot of sense. So you're you're achieving, you know, close close to parity there. Maybe uh, about um, you know thirty five to forty percent ruling elders, and then the the remaining balance would be teaching elders. Correct. So last year, Reverend Larry J. Westerveld, um, whom you know well, right, yes. from your time yep. up in uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York area, he ably served the 84th Assembly as, our, as the moderator for the, for the Assembly. Who served this year? This year was uh, Reverend John Van Meerbeek, who serves as the pastor of our church in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Interesting note here for our listeners, if you want some trivia about me personally, you might not want it, but why not give it to you? John's brother, David Van Meerbeck, is an associate pastor at My Sending Church, Crossroads Community Church, PCA, in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. So I know some of John's extended family, his nieces and his his nephew, or at least one of his nephews, and uh, I've met John's parents, and I've met John and Barb before, and they're all lovely folks. Uh, my family loves the Van Meerbeck family, and um, and so I, w- I was pleased to see that uh, that Pastor Dave's brother, as I know John, was uh, elected moderator of the 85th Assembly. Now, this year was different. I already mentioned that the OPC and the URCNA coordinated a joint assembly and worship together. Um, why did they do that, and how did this work? Well, the fundamental, obvious reason that we got together and ran concurrent assemblies and synod, depending on your perspective, um, was the joint venture of the new Trinity Psalter Hymnal, which was a joint venture of the OPC and the URCNA. That was published, and it was introduced at our concurrent assemblies. Um, So that was the key springboard. And as a result, because we ran concurrently, each evening session was a joint session where both of our denominations had representatives from our foreign missions and from our respective home missions. And then we spent one of the evenings discussing our ecumenical relationship, which was excellent. It was great uh, to gather and hear how, in many respects, we're like-minded with other Reformed denominations, and then, in particular, the URCNA currently. 
Well, the URCNA and the OPC have similar histories, right? Uh, you have the OPC coming out of the old Northern Presbyterian Church as, as that Northern Church um, drifted into liberalism and then ultimately apostasy. And uh, with the URCNA, though the circumstances were, were different enough, um, they too were, were part of a, a larger mainline church that drifted into theological liberalism and decided to, to separate from them in order to, to continue the strong Reformed heritage that they had inherited from their forefathers. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the specifics were going to be different, um, but the general foundation as to the reason why was the same. Like you said, the theological liberalism that both uh, the PC, the Northern Church, the PCUSA, and the CRC, with their drift into liberalism. And interestingly enough, if memory serves me right from our Presbyterian Church history class with Dr. Wilborn, there was a time when the OPC and the CRC contemplated merging back in the in the mid-20th century. Now, those efforts obviously failed, but I imagine that anyone in the CRC that desired that at that time would have been um, the kind of men who then moved into the URCNA down the road. That's probably the, the case, of course— you know, URCNA formed much later, a couple decades after that. But um, in in terms of principle, yes, that would probably be the case. And in the scheme of church history, what's a couple decades between friends? That's right, right? exactly. So I'm glad to hear that the OPC and the URCNA did more than just eat together in the dining hall at Wheaton College, but you enjoyed uh, worship and fellowship one with another and even um, shared uh, warm reports and regards with each other as far as your missions efforts are concerned. Now, can you give us—you've already given us a taste of a few different things that were going on at GA, but can you give us a brief 30,000-foot overview of what was covered by the assembly? And if you just fill in the, the skeleton here, we'll, we'll, we'll put the flesh and, and skin around that um, in the rest of our conversation. Uh, sure. Mostly what we do is hear um, a lot of reports and act on any recommendations. So— Probably the three committees that stand out in terms of the work of the denomination, in terms of expanding the kingdom, or at least more direct hands-on, would be our Committee on Christian Education, Committee on Foreign Missions, and Committee on Home Missions and Church Extension. Now, um, there are other committees, like I mentioned, the Committee on Coordination. They deal with the big-picture budget of the whole denomination and how— funds get distributed and things like that. And even that's a bit of an oversimplification. Um, so we hear reports from various committees, even our Committee on Diaconal Ministries. We have a Committee on Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations. And so we have representatives that will um, go and serve as fraternal delegates at other Reformed bodies and their assemblies or synods. So things like that. And we'll also hear, unfortunately, from year to year it differs, but appeals and complaints um, with respect to disciplinary or administrative issues that arise at sessional levels or presbytery levels. 
Now, this year, I was looking over the, the breakdown provided on the OPC's website, and it seems that this year, nearly an entire day of discussion was committed to a now multi-year development coming out of the Committee on Christian Education, dealing specifically with the language of the Westminster Standards. I was there when, I, I think, the very first or maybe the second assembly to, to deal with, with what has become a much larger project, was brought up to the floor. Um, I think it was when you all were meeting in, um, in Sandy... Um, Sandy Cove. Sandy Cove. Or, yeah. Yeah, Sandy Cove in Maryland. I drove down from Philadelphia just for the uh, the breakfast, the GPTS breakfast, and to sit in on some of the floor debate a couple of years ago. But can you briefly give us the history of the deliberation from previous years and comment on any progress that was made this year on this idea of modernizing the standards, okay. the language of the standards? This started, <laughs> yeah, Careful. this started two years ago when an overture came to the 83rd General Assembly that you mentioned was at Sandy Cove, and I was at that one. Um, where the overture asked the Christian Ed Committee of the denomination to consider the preparation of a modern English study version of the Shorter Catechism um, to help modernize the language, to make it easier for people to understand. Now, the purpose of the overture was that this modern English study version would just be sort of like a study guide, um, not that it would become constitutionally binding. So the Christian Ed, Ed Committee discussed it and came back last year's assembly, which was up in the Chicago area. I was not at that assembly. Um, but they decided that, you know, let's do all or nothing. Let's just change the standards or keep them as they are. Because otherwise, if you create this modern English study version, people will rely too much on that and it becomes almost de facto uh, constitutionally binding instead of de jure. So the Christian Ed Committee ultimately decided, let's recommend um, the possibility of erecting a study committee to just change the standards across the board in such a way that archaic language is changed, but not the doctrinal meaning behind it. Um, so not substance, substance changes, but you know, change the these and thous into you, for instance, and your, and, and modernizing it that way. And of course, getting rid of archaic words like stews that we see in the larger catechism. Do you think that this presents a problem for those of us who consider ourselves to be full subscriptionists? Does, does this kind of modernization of language throw us into a crisis? Well, I don't know about crisis, but I think um, I've got concerns, which, of course, I've voiced on the floor of this assembly. Um, ultimately, last year's assembly, because it was voiced concern about the other churches with which we have fraternal relations, we also asked our Committee on Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations to— uh, if I can put it somewhat crassly, just get a feel for the thought of what our sister denominations thought of this. Um, to what extent they really were able to reach out and get a good feel, that's debatable. Um, so uh, the Committee on Christian Education at this assembly came back recommending that we establish a committee of seven 
plus two alternates to look into morphological changes, replacing archaic pronouns, replacing obsolete and archaic words, um, and substituting a modern translation of scripture for the text of the Ten Commandments. That were the that was the key recommendation that Christian Ed came back to us with. Um, needless to say, there was a lot of debate on the floor, which is why it lasted for a day. Um, lots of questions, um, lots of debate, um, and I've made my arguments against even the proposal. Um, so ultimately, the assembly decided to erect the committee, and so there were seven men with two alternates. And really what this committee will do is just recommend proposal, a proposal, which the assembly next year will have to act on. And even then it has to get approved by all the presbyteries, or I think it's a super majority of the presbyteries. So what are your concerns? Are they largely practical or are they theological in nature? Or, or is it just a, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's no real reason to do this. Well, there were a couple of things I argued on the floor. First thing I argued was that our standards, even though, yeah, they're close to 400 years old, the language is not that far removed that it would require such, such changes. That was a key thing I started with. The other thing is, is even in their own report, the, the Committee on Christian Education had within it a special committee that was already dealing with some of this because of the first overture that kicked all this off. Well, they agreed that certain words needed to be changed because they're archaic and obsolete. But here was where the kicker was. This special committee, they couldn't agree on what possible substitutions could be made. So to me, unless you can come up with a direct one-to-one -one equivalent substitution, the, the meaning necessarily has to change. And that was, that was part of the reason what I argued on the floor. And plus the other aspect of it is, you look at some of the hymns and psalms that we sing that use the archaic language, we sing to God using this archaic language sometimes, but we're not going to change that. I, that's a part that was very disconnected to me. Realistically, you all just published, or I should say we, the PCA you know, shares with Great Commission publications with you, we all published a new Trinity Psalter hymnal with the full standards in the back, not just Westminster standards, but also the the three forms of of unity, and um, if you if you end up changing the constitutional documents of the of the OPC and the doctrinal standards, then you're in a bit of a bind for what do you use to confess the faith and worship? Are you going to turn to the back of the hymnal, or are you just going to print it out in the bulletin, or put it up on screens, or 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 have have alternate uh, confessions? in the pew. So there's a host of practical difficulties here, but still, we can at least affirm the original impulse, and that was to provide a, a study help for people who have enough trouble as it is learning English, right? I think it was international students right. is what Jeremiah Montgomery was getting at originally a couple of years ago. So that impulse to provide this uh, for students who are learning English, going through college courses, and now having to uh, investigate a new theology. Um, that impulse is good, but that doesn't necessarily lead to 
changing the standards wholesale. And, you know, again, the changes that are proposed or the idea behind this is that, you know, just minor changes that updates the language without changing the meaning. Um, but you, you take the expression with respect to our doctrine of God, for instance. Um, he's without passions. That's pretty archaic language. What do you substitute with that? Without changing the substance of our doctrine of God. Um, but that's just one example. Now, of course, the these and thous, I, I don't really have an issue with changing those to you. Um, but, it, you know, the archaic King James, if you will, does help differentiate between a singular versus a plural you. Which modern English, which modern English does not do, and I, I don't preach from a King James. I use the ESV, but where it matters, I indicate whether it's plural or singular from the Greek or Hebrew. And the last point I want to make on this, my own editorialization, I guess, is it's interesting to me to see an OPC General Assembly that emphasizes ecumenicity and uh, cooperation with another NAPARC denomination in the production of a, of a, of a Psalter hymnal that's going to be a blessing to many other churches, even beyond the OPC or URCNA, but then also seriously considered doing something, taking an action that quite possibly will, will set it out of accord with the PCA, the ARP, the RPCNA, the Bible Pres, the Free Church Continuing, the PRC, and, and other Presbyterian confessional denominations here in America. And I know all not all of our standards are exactly identical. I understand that. Some of us adopt revisions that others don't. Right. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of the Westminster standards across these denominations um, are held in common. And that does nothing but promote ecumenicity and cooperation and, and being on the same page. So again, while I applaud the intention behind all of this, I, I question the wisdom and seriously considering um, updating the language of the actual doctrinal standards of the Church, for all the reasons you've indicated, as well as some of the more practical ones that I've highlighted. Yeah, I think one of the things with respect to this is that um, I want to make clear, it's not that I think that our standards are unchangeable. That's not the issue. The question is, do we need such changes now? I'm sure as our language evolves, if I can use that with a conservative Presbyterian uh, podcast host, um, as we see language change over the years and decades— I, I get it. There may be a point in time where something like this needs to be done. I just don't see that the need is drastic enough to require it today. I think on that point, we are agreed. Um, though, if I was party to the deliberations, I might be coming to a different conclusion myself. You guys talked about this for a long time. We did. So, uh, and our, our summary treatment here is not going to do justice to the full floor deliberations of, of those elders. 
Now, you already mentioned some sad news from out of your own presbytery, the Presbytery of the Central United States, and uh, basically you came before the assembly and, and you shared with them the situation. You were down to three churches. You really couldn't function as a presbytery, and the result was that the presbytery dissolved, and, um, and those three congregations then were absorbed into other presbyteries, and the bounds were redrawn. You had the unfortunate responsibility of bringing this before the assembly, and and we've already mentioned that. But can you tell us, not you know, if there's any silver lining to the situation? Well, I suppose one aspect of the silver lining is that it opens up the potential for resources to be able to get churches planted within the geographical region that was or is about to be a was of the Presbytery of the Central U.S. Officially, we dissolve at the end of October. Um, So we've got one more meeting in which to close our books, so to speak, and make sure that any members at large are properly transferred and things like that. Um, But yeah, because we dwindled down to three churches, um, we had been up to five, but one left for the PCA, partly for doctrinal reasons, and one grew too small to continue, so that congregation had to dissolve, so we were left with three. So really in consultation with surrounding presbyteries, um, we tried to come up with an alternative plan, but ultimately we overtured the assembly to dissolve the Presbytery of the Central U.S. according to specific borders. Most of it was giving back counties and states um, to where they were prior to the formation of the PCUS. Now, Thursday afternoon of the assembly saw the commissioners handle a number of discipline-related matters. What can you tell us about the overture from the Presbytery of Southern California well, the overture just was seeking, I guess it came from last year, um, was just seeking clarification on the role of an accuser in once the second meeting of a trial takes place. Um, in OPC jargon, the first meeting of the trial, where it actually starts, a disciplinary trial, is really just the, the hearing the plea of the accused Here's the charge and setting the date for the actual deliberation of the trial itself. Um, So that's really what the second meeting of the trial is. So they ask, what's the role of an accuser after the second meeting of a trial? So that wasn't really anything substantive. That was just more procedural for the sake of everybody else. That's correct. Yeah, nothing really came of it. Our... Um, denominational committee on appeals and complaints gave its report and really nothing came of it. Um, The report was deemed sufficient to send back to the Presbytery of Southern California. So no changes were made with respect to that. Were there any other notable judicial cases that you had to process or work through as an assembly this year? Well, we did. There was one complaint and This is a bit confusing, uh, so I'll try to articulate it as carefully as I can. What was before the assembly was a complaint on appeal 
that originally was a complaint against a presbytery for sustaining a complaint that ended a judicial trial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was quite a mouthful, I realize. So presbytery, somebody in presbytery complained in a presbytery, complained that the presbytery sustained another complaint that ended a judicial trial. And so the person making this complaint about the other complaint was lodging a complaint that a trial was dismissed out of order. Yeah, basically, that was the idea, yes. Okay, that's that's not that tricky to think through. You just have to use the word complaint a whole lot. Yeah, that was the Kinda thing. Kind of like a double negative. That's right, that's <laughs> right. Um, and and that's what made it that's what made it difficult on the floor was making sure we were careful. Anybody who gave a speech either way had to be very careful that we were clear on which complaint we were talking about, and then also referring back to a trial. Um, and that's what made it somewhat difficult. Ultimately, the decision of the assembly was to remand the complaint back to Presbytery for them to reconsider it. Um, Okay, my own personal opinion is that I think the assembly next year is going to be having to deal with this or at least something related to it again. Yeah, all you're doing by sending it back down is not sweeping it under the rug, but just delaying the inevitable of having to come to a a definitive conclusion, um, um, unless the parties can actually hammer it out in presbytery and come to an amicable conclusion themselves. But that's that sounds unlikely in this kind of situation where it's more of a procedural uh, comeuppance rather than something else. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's related to a trial complicates things, too. Well, I commend you for being able to follow all that and explain it in such a way for this seminarian to understand. <laughs> I'm not a seasoned uh, member of any presbytery yet. I'm just a candidate under care who sits and watches and sometimes chuckles and sometimes cries um, for my lack of understanding. I hear now, you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a special study committee elected on Friday afternoon was this a study committee put together to um, oversee the work of uh, modernizing the language of the standards, or was this something That's else correct. entirely? That was it. And if I noticed right, Ryan McGraw and Dr. Tony Curto were both uh, put on there as alternates, right? That's correct. Yeah, well, that's that's good. Hopefully they'll have some good input to serve the OPC that way, and not just the OPC, but any other denomination uh, with the Westminster Standards who, who's taking a keen interest in developments in that corner of Christendom. Speaking of Dr. McGraw and Dr. Curto, as I was reading through the daily briefings prepared by Reverend Charles Biggs, by the way, I recognized a lot of GPTS-affiliated names who were going up and addressing the assembly as a whole. And I just wanted to, uh, to, to highlight that for our listeners, because it was a great encouragement to, to me to see how involved Greenville men are in the courts of the church within the OPC. Of course, you have Dr. Curdo, whom I've already mentioned. Um, he serves on the, um, the Committee of Interchurch, Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then you have trustee Mark Bube, who's... Um, 
who I think is a coordinator for the world missions of the OPC. And Correct. He's been a board member for a while with us. He's an elder up at Calvary OPC in Glenside, Pennsylvania, right across the street from Westminster Seminary. But also two of the fraternal delegates who address the assembly are men closely tied to Greenville Seminary at this point in our history. That's right. You have Dr. Kevin Backus from the Bible Presbyterian Church, um, who I think the comment was made has been to more OPC General Assemblies than almost all of the commissioners present, because uh, he comes every year. <laughs> That's but correct. He brought greetings from the Bible Presbyterian Church, and he's also one of our trustees. He was brought onto the board of Greenville Seminary last spring, spring of 2017. And then uh, Mr. Chris Campbell, uh, pastor in the Reformed Churches in the United States, the RCUS, he graduated last spring from Greenville Seminary, mm-hmm. and he addressed you all as a fraternal delegate from the RCUS. I was very pleased to see my classmate Bradney Lopez's name as one who addressed the assembly dealing with the crisis in Puerto Rico. And Bradney, for those of you who don't know, is a pastor of a small church in Puerto Rico, which has come into the OPC, having come out of um, more, I think, of a charismatic background, and Bradney's one of our current students, so he's serving as a pastor in this church, and then he's completing his theological educational requirements uh, required by his presbytery in the OPC, and he's doing that through Greenville Seminary, and we love Bradney. We were in touch with him um, as the hurricane beat down on Puerto Rico this past season, and, uh, and he kept on giving us updates, and we were praying for him and his family and his congregation. We were pleased to see how the Lord prospered them and protected them in the midst of every of, of everything in that that really dramatic trial involving that hurricane. There were a couple other folks, Reverend Doug Watson, mm-hmm. 2002 graduate of the seminaries. I think he also served on the board for a time. Correct. And he delivered the assembly's resolution of thanks at the end of the assembly. And then another graduate, Ian Wright, was elect, was elected to the Committee on Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations. And uh, like I said, Dr. McGraw was named as an alternate on that study committee that we mentioned earlier. But you, Jim Stevenson, probably (laughs) had the highest level of visibility out of any Greenville Seminary graduate or affiliated person there. You received a particular honor at the end of the assembly. Tell our listeners what you earned for yourself. Well, I don't know if it's an honor or uh, not, but (laughs) (laughs) the OPC Committee on Levity, which is unquestionably the most important committee at a General Assembly, (laughs) um, awarded me, and I can't understand why, what's known as the -the Jack-in-the-Box Award. There are very objective um, criteria for this particular award, Jim. You know exactly why you got it. (laughs) Well, supposedly I got up the most to speak to the mic, and that's why I got it. Um, I know there was a number announced, but I I really doubt those numbers are even real. (laughs) 26 is a pretty specific number. You don't think you got up 26 times to the mic? Well, I don't know. I mean, I asked questions that that certainly had something to do with it, I'm sure. Um, But then I argued against uh, the formation of the study committee, for one thing. Um, And then also once that was 
my side, if you will, was shot down and they decided to erect the committee with the nominees, I stood up to to speak in favor of a couple of the nominees like Dr. McGraw and Dr. Curdo. Very good. Well, this year's Jack in the Box for the OPC General Assembly is none other than our very own dearly beloved Jim Stevenson. Yeah. Well, the moderator, he said after it was, it was announced that I got the word, the moderator said, you know, I would ask you to stand up, but you've already done that. So <laughs> that's a pretty good one. <laughs> All right, Jim, what was the single most encouraging takeaway from General Assembly for you? Probably the, in general, the unity that we had as a church. Um, by way of personal example, two things that stood out. Um, that even though I spoke out against the formation of the study committee to potentially update the language of the standards, even those that were in favor of it, we're able to talk afterwards and and say to each other, we appreciated each other's arguments, even though we disagreed. Um, and especially the work of the committee itself, uh, the representatives of the committee, I thank them personally. Um, and then it, it was hard to present for my presbytery an overture to dissolve it. That was hard, and it really wasn't until 10 minutes prior that I was finally done with all the work associated with it because there were tweaks on this and that and just kept on doing things. And then 10 minutes prior to the time we reconvened to deal with the issue, the emotional side of it hit me. And at that point, I had to present. Um, but the encouragement that I got in to share with my brothers in the Presbytery of the Central U.S. Um, was very helpful and very uplifting in such a circumstance. So, I mean, after all, we closed a presbytery. That's no, that's no small thing. That's not just a procedural thing. It's like the closing of a church, but on a whole. Well, you weren't dissolving the individual congregations. That's correct. But but it, you know, Presbytery is a regional church. That's correct. Um, and and so I can imagine how that would not just be complex on an organizational, institutional level, but also fraught with emotional difficulties and and discouragements. But this is exactly why um, we have, uh, or this is one of the reasons why we have the ecclesiology that we do, and that's because yeah. God provides in His Word a church government that not only um, chastises and corrects uh, to our own good and to God's glory, but also encourages us yeah. to our good and God's glory. So we thank the Lord for that and, and, and just how you were encouraged by your brothers even there. I, I imagine I know what you're most concerned about coming out of this GA, and that is what exactly is going to come of uh, this discussion of modernizing the doctrinal standards, uh, the language of the doctrinal standards of your church. Yeah, uh, for me, that's probably the biggest concern, and we'll see what the committee that has been elected comes up with for the next assembly. It will definitely be a long, drawn-out process. It's going to take up a lot of the assembly's time in the future. It will be interesting to follow the discussion and see if, at the end of the day, all of this work comes to naught or actually produces um, some kind of historically remarkable 
um, development in American and international Presbyterianism, because surely as the OPC works on this and presents something and then perhaps adopts a change, other denominations are going to have to consider what they will do with their standards. And will we have a proliferation of slightly different Westminster standards, all trying to articulate the same doctrine, or will we actually have significant doctrinal differences between denominations that right now are, for all intents and purposes, nearly identical on paper? Right. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before I let you go? Well, not too much. It's always an honor and a privilege to serve at the General Assembly level. I know some people find, for instance, congregational meetings or even presbytery meetings boring. Um, I don't. I enjoy them quite a lot because I really think it is important that we know what is going on in the whole church, not just locally. That's part of what being Presbyterian is all about. And being able to pray with and for brothers in other presbyteries and other circumstances that the specifics may be different, but the overarching foundation is always the same. Uh, That's always a wonderful thing to do. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you for that last parting word. Uh, It was a good word, a benediction of sorts, and an encouragement to all all of us who listen, who either are in the office of elder or aspiring to the office, to be actively engaged in the courts of the Church at every level, and to be good churchmen. And just a little plug for Greenville Seminary, if, if you know you're not called to pastoral ministry, but you are ordained as an elder or as a deacon, consider enrolling in our Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders and Deacons program. It's a 35-credit course that can be completed completely by distance. Um, completed completely. That's that's good. <laughs> but it can be completed by distance in its entirety, and it will only equip you to serve as a churchman um, in, in the church, to serve in a capacity that you have clearly been called to serve and you have been affirmed in doing. So give me a Give me a shout if you're interested in more information for that program. I just spoke with somebody today who wants to enroll in the MMRE program. Excellent. Uh, and in the PCA down in Texas. So we are we are growing in that area. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Please send our love from the seminary to Tricia and the kids. And I look forward to talking with you more in the weeks and months to come. Will do. And thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.